This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. On today's show, we welcome Dr. Frank Moore, Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern Mississippi. For more than 30 years, he, his students, and other collaborators have studied the biology of migratory songbirds across North America, most intensely along the northern coast of the Gulf of Mexico. Today, we'll talk about these migratory birds that visit Mississippi during their migration. Also, Dr. Major's here, ready for pet questions, and Libby always likes to hear your recent brushes with nature. So join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. A reminder that if you miss Creature Comforts on its Thursday broadcast, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Libby, glad to have you back in studio. Uh, Any interesting uh, tidbits from your recent uh, trip that you'd like to share with us? Oh, gosh, I had a great trip, but um, coming home was really fun and exciting. But as I've told a couple people... I don't ever remember getting quite such a big dose of pollen. Mm. So it, it was really something. When I, I came in late Tuesday night, and it, it was like even in even late at night, I was breathing in the pollen. I realized, wow, what is this tickle in my throat? But Wednesday morning, I was greeted early with uh, my first Perula warbler song, and those are some of the little warblers that I love the most around our house, so I was glad to hear it. Now, I can't really verify that that was the first time he was on my property because I'd been gone up until that point, but still, now I'm starting to look for the prothonotaries, and I'll... um, check out as soon as I get home the Perula and try to find out where he's nesting and getting ready for Nature Fest April the 2nd this coming Saturday is Nature Fest at the uh, Mississippi Museum of Natural Science Paul and I are going to be volunteering that day they're going to be live lots of live animal shows in the theater and then scattered around the museum all kinds of activities as usual Um, Audubon's going to have an early earlier morning like an eight o'clock bird walk on the trails that you access through um maze lake Mm -hmm. so that should be a fun day at uh, the natural science museum and then it's also nature day at the clinton nature center so i hope i'm going to fit both of those in and uh, maybe i'll see other families at both events too that's right. Uh, hopefully the weather will be good <clears throat> after some of the severe weather that we've had in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, speaking about pollen, I play tennis and professional tennis, when it's played on clay, they often determine whether the ball is in or out based on a mark it makes in the clay. Well, I was playing with my friends Monday night and there was so much pollen on the court that we could almost begin to do the same thing. The pollen, you could see it, you know, as the ball bounced, you could see the pollen everywhere. So, but uh, the other thing that reminds me of when you go out of town and come back to Mississippi, especially during the summertime, the humidity is all, you know, that first time you step off the plane, you're like, oh, yeah, back in Mississippi, you know, so it's very similar with the pollen. Yeah, and my family, we call that a Mississippi hug. You get, <laughs> yes, you feel like you're enveloped in the humidity. 
As usual, Dr. Major is on the line with us. Good morning, Dr. Major. Got a couple of emails for you, but first wanted to talk about uh, severe weather and keeping pets safe. You know, we've talked about how some dogs and cats seem to be a little bit more nervous than others. Uh, remind us, if you would, maybe of a couple of things that uh, pet owners might do to help keep their pets calm during uh, real severe weather with, uh, you know, thunder and, and lightning and, and that sort of thing. Right. Some, some dogs are almost oblivious to it. They, uh, you know, do well and they don't seem to have any issues with it. Others start shaking several hours before uh, a thunderstorm even. They know the changes in barometric pressure and they can sense that something's going to happen. Uh, a lot of times we're not with our pits uh, when those thunderstorms uh, occur. If we know it and some of your pits may respond to some uh, tranquilizer type drugs that seem to work uh, and help, talk to your veterinarian about that. Uh, the famous thunder shirt uh, works on some animals. Um, that's kind of like wrapping them in a swaddling uh, type blanket, but it uh, has Velcro and you can put it on. They seem to lose their effectiveness over time, so you wouldn't want to leave that on all the time. Uh, you know, there's various things that you can do, but really the, the pet needs a place that they can actually call like a den or something a lot of pets love to go into their kennel or in a special place in the house where they can kind of ride out a storm so they're pretty smart about it well that, that's interesting that you mentioned that because uh for my cat when uh, the the uh the sirens went off i got in my safe place but i figured well he runs around a lot so i thought well i'll just put him back <laughs> in his carrier so i got the carrier out and uh normally when i go to the vet he seems to kind of once gently guided in there goes in there but yesterday he decided that he did not want to go into the carrier so we're there kind of in the middle of the house the lower level you know in our safe area and we're struggling he's trying to get out i'm trying to get him in but uh after a couple of minutes i won and he he resigned himself to being in his in his uh, uh, carrier for a while, but was glad uh, when the all clear came through and he was able to start roaming around again. So, right. uh, an, a- inter- inter- in- an interesting thing yesterday, I got home during the uh, de- deluge of rain, and as I walked in the house, I looked out on the hummingbird feeder, and there was a little hummingbird at the feeder, and I don't know how it survived, but he was out there getting a, a little nourishment just as that rain was beginning to stop. So they're pretty amazing. And uh, I was I was really impressed with his tenacity, if you will. <laughs> well, that's the to the old phrase, the early bird gets the worm. So he was the brave one that went out there and was uh, rewarded with uh, unlimited use of the feeder there. So that's an interesting story. Right. Got an email here for you that says, uh, my wonderful 50-pound mixed-breed one-year-old puppy has begun to pull the upholstery cushions from outdoor furniture on a porch and take them out to the yard to chew. This occurs when we're gone from the house. He's got a lot of other chew toys. Is there a product I could spray on the fabric that would repel him but not me? Great question, and it it seems like the dog has developed a fetish about these uh, things. They may be treated with something that has a good smell to him, or he may just be doing it because he's bored. There is a product called Bitter Apple uh, that you can spray on these areas, and in a lot of cases that will help as far as uh, actually being, and it shouldn't hurt the, hurt the fabric at all, but it is used, and sometimes it will help, so that would be a start. Okay? All right. Got a couple callers on the line. Let's invite uh, Francis, uh, who's called in today. Good morning, Francis. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for having me on. 
Um, I've got another tale. I thought this might make everybody laugh on a Thursday, but it's another tale from the farm down here in Kingston, Mississippi. And here it goes. I, I believe I had you rolling the last time with that. Uh, I shot my grandma's cat, but I thought it was a possum. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's another one. Okay. Back in the day, we didn't have a dog, and I shot the only cat my grandma had. Thought it was a possum. Cat was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> grandma went to a grave, never knowing what happened to that cat. <laughs> and this is another true story. Uh, the names have been changed to protect the innocent, of course. <laughs> but one cold winter night, I took two young boys, Kevin and Renee, seven and eight years old, out night lighting. We shot a few spot eyes. That, that night, you know, they looked just like rabbit eyes, but we didn't know. Shot some spiders. But anyway, I caught a glimpse of some eyes going up a tree. I gave the light to Renee, told him to hold the light while I shoot. I shot, boom, all you could hear was limbs breaking. And um, limbs breaking, and um, it, it, as it fell to the ground. Sounded like a sack of cement when it hit the ground. And uh, I turned around, and all I could see was my light getting smaller and smaller. I yelled, Renee, Kevin, come back. Come back here. The light disappeared into the woods. They were gone. As I stood there, I turned around in the dark, and I said, please, Lord, let whatever I just killed be dead. <laughs> and when I turned around, it was the biggest coon that I've ever killed in my life. Thank goodness it was dead. And I'm saying this to end it. Now, to all of the game wardens that might be listening, you got to prove all this first. <laughs> all right, uh, Francis, thanks for calling in with the story. Appreciate your uh, input this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to stay on the phone lines to Yazoo County we go. Bell has called in. Good morning, Bell. Go ahead, please. Um, thank you. Um, I, uh, three days out of four earlier this week, I had birds in my house, and I think that they were wrens because uh, uh, there was one one day, the next day there were two, the third day there weren't any, and the fourth day there was one bird in here. And um, it, it there was singing, and um, I'm, I'm pretty sure those were wrens, but I, if I had told some people that three days out of out of four they would have thought i was crazy but uh i was able to get them out of the house and i think that they're coming in when i open the back door coming and going and i say that because i had had some years ago uh trapped on my front porch and um by opening the back door and getting all the lamps on I was able to get them to fly out of the bedroom into the kitchen and out the back door. But I just wonder if other people have these birds that uh, I've always heard curiosity kill the cat, but these birds are really coming in my house. Thank you. I I have a friend that a wren came in. um, It was a a room that used to be a porch, but then it had been closed in, and it came in the door and started a nest. And uh, 
I think they finally devised a way because I teased her that she would just have to leave the door open until the the young were fledged. <laughs> but she, I think they ended up moving the um, the nest right outside so that the birds could could access it, and they found it okay. But I'm I'm thinking that it probably was a wren flicking its little tail, little with a kind of a longish sharp beak and flicking its tail a lot. I just saw it from uh, silhouetted. Okay, um, you you got uh, it out pretty quick then, huh? Oh uh, yeah, it didn't take very long after turning on lamps in the kitchen, yeah. so they could see that, and they it was breezy, and I think they could feel the breeze coming in from the back door. They knew where and to go. When, yeah, yeah, but I, I surely don't want little dead birds in the house. No, you need him. He needs a place outside. Yeah. Put another birdhouse out there. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh-huh. Thanks, Bell, for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll welcome to the show Dr. Frank Moore as Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern Mississippi. He and his collaborators have studied the biology of migratory birds across North America, parts of Europe, and Asia. Today, we'll talk about some of the migratory birds in Mississippi. Also, we'll talk to someone from the National Wildlife Federation about National Wildlife Week, which is April 4th through 8th. You can call in with questions and comments. Our phone number is one mpb ring Reach us at 1-877-672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. We're back on Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment, call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's one 877 672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We're going to talk to our guest, Dr. Frank Moore, in just a few minutes. But as uh, I mentioned before the break, we've got another quick interview to talk to. Uh, we're going to visit with David Majewski from the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, National Wildlife Week is April 4th through the 8th. So, David, thanks for joining us on the show. What, what do you want us to know about National Wildlife Week? Well, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be back. Um, National Wildlife Week is a week that the National Wildlife Federation designates every year really to celebrate wildlife. And we'd like to focus on our wildlife here at home in North America, because that's where we kind of focus our conservation work. And so this year, what our kind of theme is, is called Keep It Wild. And what we're trying to do is encourage everybody to get outdoors this spring, particularly um, during National Wildlife Week, again, April 4th through 8th. And enjoy America's great outdoors and enjoy our wildlife neighbors. Um, you know, we tend to think of wildlife living in faraway wilderness places, and those are important, uh, you know, habitat places and great places to go and observe wildlife. But, you know, nature is all around us. And if you just get outside, even in your own yard or your neighborhood, you're going to see some pretty cool wild animals, including birds and butterflies. And so we're hoping everybody will do that and, and that they'll take the National Wildlife Week pledge on our website, which is nwf.org slash National Wildlife Week and pledge to get involved protecting wildlife with the National Wildlife Federation. 
So um, when trying to observe uh, wildlife in nature, are there some maybe some tips that people would keep in mind uh, to get the best experience? Absolutely, yeah. So um, if you go to the National Wildlife Week, Wildlife Week website, we've got a whole section called Explore America's Big Backyard. And myself and Peter Gross, who is the host of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, they've got a new series coming out in January. And he and I have teamed up to do a series of videos to share just that kind of information. Like, what do you do to observe certain kinds of animals? So the, the, the thing is that I always say is just practice the golden rule. And that is to treat wildlife with respect, give them their space, and watch them from a distance. So don't try to ever approach, pet, pick up, touch, feed, cuddle, any kind of wild animal, whether that's a bear or a, a, a moose or a bird in your backyard. And that way, everyone stays safe. So um, other than that golden rule, I would say just you know go outside and use your senses. Be observant. You know, use your eyes, use your ears. Bird migration is picking up right now. All sorts of birds are going to be coming through, you know, our neighborhoods all across America. And, you know, learning bird song is a great way of kind of adding a whole other layer of discovering the natural world. Uh, what about people who might want to make their uh, backyards or their land, their area more friendly to uh, wildlife or any, any tips in that regard? Yeah, sure. I mean, the National Wildlife Federation has a whole program called Garden for Wildlife that teaches people how to do this. And on the National Wildlife Week website, nwf.org slash National Wildlife Week, we've got a whole bunch of actions that people can take, including information on how you can plant things that are going to support our local songbirds, our declining bee populations, and in particular, the monarch butterfly, you know, these beautiful, big, orange and black butterflies that we all kind of grew up seeing, they're rapidly disappearing. But if we all planted a garden with some native wildflowers to provide nectar to the adult butterflies and native milkweed, which is the only caterpillar host plant for the species, and we all do that, suddenly we've just exponentially expanded the amount of habitat that the monarch butterflies have, and that's going to help them recover their population. Uh, if you would talk a little bit about uh, the, the mission of the National Wildlife Federation. Sure. Our mission is pretty simple. It's to unite all Americans to ensure that wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. And, you know, unfortunately, we humans are the major cause of that rapid change today. Um, you know, we're, we're destroying habitat, we're developing, we're polluting major global issues like climate change are impacting wildlife. And so our, our goal at National Wildlife Federation is to focus on our shared love and our shared value of protecting wildlife. You know, we don't always agree on everything, but you know, the, the, the love of the natural world is it's really an American value. And so that's at the core of our mission, uniting all the voices from all the different points of view that care about wildlife to stand up and say, hey, we need to have good, strong wildlife policy and legislation. We need to encourage Americans to spend, you know, maybe less screen time and more green time. Uh, we've got whole campaigns devoted to getting kids out into nature. We publish Ranger Rick magazine. Many folks out there might have grown up reading that. So the National Wildlife Federation does a whole wide variety of work under this umbrella of wildlife conservation. All right, so the National Wildlife uh, Week is April 4th through the 8th. That's next week. If you want to get more information about it, you can go to nwf.org slash National Wildlife Week. David, thanks for spending a few minutes with us this morning. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to be visiting throughout the rest of the hour with our guest, Dr. Frank Moore uh, from the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, Frank, uh, we had a call before the break, and uh, we were thinking that it might be wrens, and you were saying uh, you've had some experience with wrens sort of 
coming in inside. Yes, I suspect that uh, it was a Carolina wren, and this is not uncommon for Carolina wrens to try to nest in our garage. And then, of course, if we shut the garage door, now they're trapped, and that becomes a, well, inconvenience for them. And uh, so we tend to leave the garage door open. They can come and go. And um, I suspect that's what the bird was, for sure. All right. Uh, if you would tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you chose to focus on um, studying migratory birds. Well, I became enamored with um, songbird migration when I was a graduate student at Clemson University. I had the uh, privilege of working with uh, Sid Gotro, whose name, as you might guess, is uh, um, he's from South Louisiana. And uh, Sid stirred my interest uh, maybe later in the program might have an opportunity to talk about radar ornithology or the use of radar in in terms of migration and he was certainly a pioneer in that area um he stirred my interest introduced me to the uh chenilles of southwest louisiana and so in 1979 cindy and i my wife and i um moved to hattiesburg mississippi and the university of southern mississippi and uh, for the next 35 years my graduate students and I studied songbird migration um, at a variety of places across North America, a couple of places in Europe, but most intensely, as you mentioned, uh, along the northern coast of the Gulf of Mexico. So for someone that studies migratory birds, are there still things that you learn about and surprise you about these birds? Absolutely. In fact, I was thinking about some of the, um, the comments that uh, Dr. Major, I believe, the veterinarian, uh, mentioned about dogs being sensitive to barometric pressure and birds and i'm thinking songbird migrants are especially sensitive to barometric pressure changes they're outstanding meteorologists and so they use that information as well as other bits of information about the weather um, to help them forecast or predict uh, events anticipate and obviously, we know a little bit about migration. That certainly, certainly comes in handy if you can, you know, know what's coming up and maybe adjust on the fly, as it were. Absolutely. Right. So um, why do so many species of birds undertake migration? Do we know the, the, the causes? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, that's a good question. And indeed, uh, migration is a fantastic, fascinating uh, aspect of the biology of many critters. We mentioned earlier in the program about monarch butterflies. Um, that are obligate migrants and a rather spectacular movement in the fall along the Mississippi Gulf Coast, indeed. Um, but for most birds, uh, migration is a um, twice-yearly, twice-annual event. They move away from uh, deteriorating conditions in the fall. Um, many are, are winter in the neotropics, you know, Central America, South America, Mexico. And then, as we're witnessing, as we speak, returning north again to areas where they can find lots of food and um, better conditions to rear their offspring. Is the timing of migration set in stone, or is there something that maybe birds can sense about when they need to start their journey? Uh, that's an excellent question. And indeed, if you think about, um, let's take a red-eyed vireo or a prothonotary warbler, a songbird migrant that's in the neotropics, how does it predict or how does it determine when to leave? And so they have an endogenous or internal uh, biological clock 
that's set to this changing seasons. And so this endogenous clock um, tells them when to leave, but they still want to take advantage or pay attention to, uh, let's say, en route conditions, situations. So they're, um, it, it's a mix of external and internal information, if you will. So we see some migratory birds um, every year. Um, so do they tend to go the same route each time, and how do, you, how do they navigate? That's an excellent question. And indeed, I was thinking um, uh, earlier, um, talking to Libby about uh, gray catbirds that returned to our backyard about three or four days ago. And they are religious, if you will, in the timing of their arrival. Um, and my guess is it's the same birds that have successfully nested in our backyard for the last three or four years. And so getting to the right place where they've been successful at the right time is is critical. Um, what about risks of migration? It, it seems like it would be a, a very challenging to travel all that way, you know, twice each year. What, what are the risks that the birds face? When I think that's the um, conundrum, if you will, or the real rub is, is how a migratory bird, given the advantages of leaving, uh, uh, say, North America in the fall and then returning again in the spring, how do I offset uh, the challenges that arise during migration? If we're going to fly a thousand miles, for example, you can imagine what um, um, issues might arise. In fact, it would be interesting to hear folks um, comment about what are some of the challenges that arise for migratory birds. I mean, I'll give you just one example, and that is migratory birds are like you, songbirds are like you and I. We sleep at night and we're active during the day. However, during migration, these birds are nighttime flyers. So there's a sleep loss problem, if you will. And you know what it's like when you don't get enough sleep. So you can imagine a, a bird that's flown all night or most of the night for three or four days in a row it may create a problem for them. We mentioned uh, that some of your studies are on the northern coast of the Gulf of Mexico. How important is that region to bird migration? Well, we've, we, um, as early as the 19, early 1980s, established uh, some long-term study sites along the northern coast, uh, one uh, associated with the coastal chenilles of southwest Louisiana um, that are let's say, islands of forested habitat embedded within uh, Louisiana marsh. Another, um, where we studied birds for about uh, 20 years. Uh, another long-term site was on the Mississippi Barrier Islands. And um, if you've, anyone ever has an opportunity to visit uh, that landscape, it's, uh, it's remarkable. And then a little bit east, we spent time in Fort Morgan Peninsula, uh, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, studied birds there and it's a uh, those are like bird migration meccas if you will and uh and in fact i had the pleasure of working with many um graduate students over the course of uh my career and i think in part they were attracted to the special places we worked 
This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Frank Moore from the University of Southern Mississippi. Dr. Major still on hand, ready for pet questions, and Libby always likes to discuss your recent brushes with nature. So give us a call. We've got some open phone lines. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and our guest for the hour is Frank Moore from the University of Southern Mississippi. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcasting app, or download the MPB Public Media app, then you can access all of the MPB Think Radio local programs on your schedule. Join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. So, Frank, I want to talk about how weather radar helps us learn more about bird migration. But first, we do have a caller on the line. Mike from Hernando wants to talk about hummingbird migration. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air with us. Uh, good morning. Uh, Mr. Moore, I wanted to make a point that I know you're fully aware of. There's a hummingbird migratory path through Marshall County, and we have a stopover spot out here that celebrates it each year. And I wondered if you would comment on their journey across the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's a tiny bird that has to have a lot of fuel, and yet they fly all the way from our coast to Mexico across that waterway. I think that's that's really a keen observation. In fact, there is still some debate about to what extent hummingbirds, roof, um, uh, uh, ruby-throated hummingbirds, actually migrate across the Gulf of Mexico. And we're convinced that in the fall they do so, and there's a lot of reasons why. In spring, uh, hummingbirds may, in fact, uh, move around the Gulf, uh, fly over the Gulf, uh, in fact, many migratory birds may do the same, and it lot larger depends upon uh, weather conditions, and and their condition. You know, how energetically are they prepared for mm-hmm. that journey? That was our question here because they eat so much, and that's such an enormously long distance over water. They have nowhere to fuel up. When you know, it's interesting. We studied. Uh, uh, hummingbird migration on Fort Morgan Peninsula in the fall, and we capture um, hundreds of ruby-throated hummingbirds, and we could weigh these birds, and it's uh, remarkable how much fat, fat being the fuel of migration, how much fat they put on for a small little bird, oh. to the extent it even affects their flight capabilities. Mm-hmm. And so they use that, yeah. that fat, they burn that for that long-distance journey. I asked you the question because to me it always sounded implausible that a tiny bird that has to have so much nectar could fly that distance without crashing into the water. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, that's certainly well, a risk. Thank you for that. Yeah. It and, is. Thank and you me. know, if, if you're seeing your birds, your hummingbirds, just before they start that migration or right after, they're eating or drinking that nectar to a larger extent than they probably do normally. They're tanking up, uh-huh. you know, or they've been depleted when they've come back this time of year and they're, they're really having to suck it down because they, they yeah. got to get on to um, breeding and nest making. And can you imagine what a taxing job that is for the females to now start producing mm-hmm. eggs? So well, you're seeing them point. at those points when they're really eating a lot. Yeah, I understand that. But, you know, when you look at how fast their wings beat over that distance, it's a miracle to me they don't die. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's the trade-off is just got to be, uh, you know, it's amazing because there's so many risks involved that there's got to be a tremendous reward, huh, genetically. Absolutely. For them to still be around. And as good a meteorologist as these migratory birds are, including hummingbirds, if they can select the conditions under which they decide to make a flight, a long-distance flight, whether overland but especially over water, then they can increase the likelihood of being successful. So if I can get some following winds when I take off and they are consistent for long distances, then the, the mm-hmm. chore becomes much easier, much easier. Oh, I understand. Yeah. yeah, I see. Thank you for that. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Mike. Good to hear from you this morning on Creature Comforts. Um, I wonder, too, if, the, you know, we hummingbirds have such a high, you know, they seem to be very um, active, and so they're hyper, and the fact that maybe feed into their ability to, to navigate these long distances? Well, they certainly have a high um, metabolic rate. In fact, as an aside, it's interesting, in spring when we were studying ru- um, ruby-throated hummingbirds on Horn Island, and East Ship Island, we became convinced we never did any experiments or any uh, deep research on this, but we were pretty convinced that they're able to downregulate their body temperature, like go into, in effect, uh, reduce their body temperature to save energy stores at night, especially at night, and even during the day. So little things like that, I think, offset the risk of this migratory journey. All right, so I'm curious, how does weather radar help us learn more about bird migration? Oh, that's, an, again, another excellent question, and it's, a, it's become an invaluable tool in understanding the movement biology of many critters, uh, insects, bats, uh, songbird migrants, uh, shorebirds, waterfowl, etc. And as most of us know, weather surveillance radar um, was established largely to forecast weather. I mean, we, we had a serious front come through, more or less serious front, just a couple days ago. Uh, the previous week, another one. And weather surveillance radar brought us information about that weather system so we could help people deal with that, uh, anticipate problems. Well, because weather surveillance radar also detects birds and other um, biological targets in the atmosphere, it's become an invaluable tool in understanding the movement of um, migratory songbirds, for example, and uh, the direction they take, uh, the volume or number of birds aloft. Uh, it's a huge, rich data set that's, that we're just beginning to explore. Um, and it'd be fun to talk about uh, 
you know, the sorts of things that weather surveillance radar has told us about bird migration. But just as an aside, I mentioned bats a minute ago. As many folks are aware, um, there are large uh, numbers of uh, roosting bats in caves, for example, in Texas. And weather surveillance radar have been important in understanding when they leave and when they return and in what volume. Um, weather surveillance radar in relation to movement of um, of birds around wind farms uh, that are dotting the landscape. Um, and and so, as I say, the uh, it's a good question about the value of this tool. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Back to the phone lines we go. Off to Hendersonville, Tennessee. James has called in today. Good morning, James. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I have a question about hawk. I don't know what kind of hawk it is. They all kind of look the same to me. So the hawk is pretty big size, about a foot and a half long. And I think they have mated, and they're living in one of the trees that we have, the hollow hollow area of the tree. What can we do to reassure those those two hawks are happy here? We have plenty. There's plenty of property on both sides that have plenty of food sources, squirrels, rabbits, mice, whatever it is. So what can we do as a family to make sure we don't bother them? We only cut grass and sit on the front porch. That's pretty much all we do. There's no kids running around, nothing like that. So is that okay? I mean, do you think they're happy? I'm not um, an expert on hawk biology other than to say, how, how curious, how high up is the nest in the tree? Um, let's see. Uh, the tree's probably about 75 years old, no joke, because um, I'm 54, and it was here way before I got here. Um, I would say it's probably about second story. If you have a two-story house, sure. it probably be a second story. So it's sus- quite, off the, quite a bit off the ground, yeah. Yeah, I suspect if you um, do as you continue to do, these birds are are uh, quite aware of and, and used to um, human beings, and they're nesting near you, and I don't know if you have neighbors and so on and so forth, but I don't know whether it's a red-tailed hawk or red-shouldered hawk or, or what sort of um, hawk it is. It, but it, It's pretty big. It's probably about as big around as a as a football i mean that's pretty i mean pretty fat birds for me anyway um maybe not quite that big and it's like a foot and a half long it's like a orange kind of breast but all, um, all the lot yeah i don't know yeah it sounds like a red red tailed hawk or a red shoulder or mm-hmm. um if, if it's I, I think it's too big as you describe it to be a cooper's hawk which is a, an occipiter not a uh budio uh hawk that i just described so um but i just Enjoy the bird. It's going to be uh, quite an experience. And if you can get a picture of it. Perfect. Even yep. a, It doesn't have to be a great picture, but you take some pictures with your phone as you're sitting there watching and um, send it to us, and we can tell you what kind of hawk you've got. Cool. Thank you. Um, also, there's plenty plenty property. Um, there's a three-acre field on one side that has trees, and there's an empty field on the other side, about four-acre field on the other side. So basically, there's nobody around us. There's people across the street. You know, a couple of cul-de-sacs or something crossed like down the way, but there's nothing there because we've lived there whole, our whole life. And oh, like, you've probably got there, lots there, of birds. Have, yeah, that sounds like good bluebird habitat. Watch for some bluebirds. Yeah, we have uh, cardinals. We have robins. Robins all year. I love those robins. They're the best birds in the world for me because they just are. You can stand four feet from them. And they just look at you like, okay, bud, you know, I'm eating. <laughs> Get away from me. You know, they're, they're real cool because we've lived there our whole life. So, you know, these birds have grown up in the property. So I love it. 
I was just going to say it sounds like they enjoy your property, and I suspect they've returned um, year after year to take advantage of, uh, let's call it your hospitality. Yeah, you're doing the right things. Hey, uh, James, thanks for the call. And uh, we'd love to hear or get uh, pictures, if you can get them, of of the hawks or any of the other birds in your area. If you get some pictures, send them to animals at mpbonline.org. Let's take our last break of the hour. When we get back, we'll finish up with our guest, Dr. Frank Moore. Dr. Major still on the line for pet questions, and Libby Hartfield's here in studio with us as well. It's time to join our conversation with a phone call. It's 1-877-MPB-RING. Reach us at 1-877-672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We'll wrap up the show after this. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. We're back on Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest today is Dr. Frank Moore, Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh... So, um, Frank, a question, do the size of migrating flocks of birds vary, and and how do they determine who flies with who? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, Well, there's been several good questions, indeed. Um, But it's a longstanding question in uh, songbird migration biology is to what extent do they flock, group, at night? during migration. And there's every reason to believe that they they may be closer than you'd expect by chance, but they it's not likely they flock like your starling flock you see during the day or or purple martins or barn swallows, etc. Um, give us, if you would, a couple of uh, the migratory birds that um, folks in Mississippi might see this time of year. Well, I mentioned uh, gray catbirds, which as the name suggests, it's a gray bird, absolutely beautiful bird. It's got a um, kind of a russet rump patch, and, um, sings, uh, reminds you of a, of a cat. Um, now, it's a forest-dwelling bird, but, but like mockingbirds, they tend to be on edges, so they could come to your backyard as long as you have some shrubs and so on. But there are many, many other birds. If you have some wooded landscape uh, from wood thrushes to red-eyed vireos, um, nest box next whole nesting birds like prothonotary warblers and um, many many birds that winter by us uh, dark-eyed juncos and chipping sparrows you see at your feeders in the winter here but then they they leave they head further north do you have a favorite migratory songbird well most of my favorites stem from our work um, and the gray catbird is one we would encounter uh, visit with study gray catbirds by the hundreds, if not thousands, if you will, and it's just a remarkable bird. Um, Swainson's thrush, another bird that um, uh, is a long-distance migrant and has been especially cooperative, if you will, in our trying to understand songbird migration. Back to the phone lines we go. Our friend Mikey from Mobile is on the line. Good morning, Mikey. Hey, thank you. Um, I'm going to try to be brief here, um, and it, it, and I hope it's not too stupid. Um, but uh, the hummingbird migration thing, uh, I have hollies where I would like to hang hummingbird feeders 
Um, but I have squirrels, of course, <laughs> and other predators. Is Do hollies at all protect the possibility for nesting, feeding, living for hummingbirds? Yeah, I can't. I can't speak to that. I would guess that if I had, if I wanted to attract hummingbirds, I'd have a, a pole or some other mechanism by which I could hang a hummingbird feeder, and uh, be it from a tree, but somewhat protected, say from squirrels. Although, um, so I, I can't speak to issue about hollies. You know, I put mine on the eve of the house, and I don't ever get the squirrels bothering. I say that, and now I'll go back and have that problem today. But and uh-huh. also, it helps the hummingbirds to be able to feed when it's when it's raining, mm-hmm. because they can still get there to their feeders. But um, I don't know if that holly you'd almost you'd just about have to try that and see. Okie doke. Thank you. Yeah. Good to hear from you, Mikey. Thanks for the call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines. Going to Kill, and Joe is on the line. Good morning, Joe. What do you have for us? Good morning, uh, Dr. Moore. I'll pass me across at Clemson University, where I graduated. Outstanding. Um, Go Tigers. <laughs> that was, I, I'm 70, graduated in 78, so you were a little bit before me. But anyway, um, I've been, I'm a consulting forester, and I've been in the woods all my life for 40-something years and been active with the Audubon Society and birding, and they have the Audubon Society, Gulf Coast Audubon Society is planning a trip to Dolphin Island this weekend for the the spring migration. It's a wonderful thing to do if you've never been there before. So I just wanted to throw that out. I couldn't agree more. In fact, it's this weekend. I would encourage you to go back in later part of uh, April, early May, where there, where you're likely to see more or a greater diversity of uh, long distance songbird migrants. I mean, this is a good time to go to Dolphin Island. It's a, a beautiful place, and the folks on Dolphin Island are doing a lot to um, protect property, patches of property that are valuable to wildlife, including songbird migrants. That's uh, right. That's right. Joe, the Audubon Society people. I mean, you got plenty of people that are very knowledgeable that can answer any question you might have. Mm-hmm. Joe, if someone's interested in going, where could they go to find more information? I would go to their Facebook page or uh, Gulf Coast Audubon Society. Yeah, they've got a good website, too. Yeah. All they right. Uh, yes. Great, Joe. Thanks for the call and the tip there on that uh, event taking place this weekend. We're going to close out the show with one final call, and it's our friend William in Starkville. Good morning, William. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Got to be quick. Uh, I, I watched the. Uh, family of hawks uh, rear in a tall pine tree probably four or five stories high behind our house we have a lot of pine trees and uh, at the end of the season when they were fledging and I think one of the two uh, young had already fledged and I looked out one morning and halfway up the tree one hawk one little hawk is hanging and it's not small it's full size hanging by one foot upside down, and I watched it for half an hour or longer, and finally decided I'd go out and see what in the world how it was caught. Whether it got stuck in a in a, in a piece of a fish line and then got caught in the tree, but anyway, it, it had been there for at least half an hour, and when I approached it, it, it finally just let go and fl- flew away. <laughs> but um, it was a real surprise. I thought that it was stuck. 
So you don't know uh, what it was clinging to, or it wasn't? Yeah, well, it was some prey. hanging on a vine. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was hanging on the straight vines and trees occasional, and so I'm sure it had just fallen over the nest and hanging on to this uh-huh. thing. But, uh, That's a keen uh, observation. I, yeah, yeah, and that uh, that winter, the storm blew down uh, blew down the nest, and we've never seen them again. And I complained like about this to a neighbor, and he said, "Well, that hawk nest must have been there for years because they'd come over and pick off doves up my soapy for a block away." And, All right, William, we've run out of time. Thanks for your call. That's going to be it for Creature Comforts, a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. Funding is provided for the show by contributions from listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show was engineered today by Liz Gill, and our call screener was Jay White. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Frank Moore, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.